0: As we continue our series on My Heart, Christ's Home, I invite you to turn with me in the New Testament to the very first gospel, to the gospel of Matthew, to the 19th chapter. We're going to read a few verses from that 19th chapter, the first nine, and then we're going to skip over to one verse which will serve as our text from the book of Hebrews. So in Matthew 19, Matthew writes... And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And then over to the book of Hebrews, to the 13th chapter, this is under a list of Concluding exhortations, and it's the fourth verse that we'll focus on this morning, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So some time ago, I came across a marriage test in Reader's Digest, so you all know it has to be top-notch and accurate. And I took the test. (laughs) Unfortunately, I didn't get them all right. This morning, I'd like to share it with you so you can commiserate with me in my failures, and we can do that together. I know that not everyone listening this morning is married. But marriage is a huge part of our culture. Most people in our culture and society are either anticipating marriage, are engaged, are currently married, or have been in a marriage at some point in their life. And so, here is the test. First, If you have to ask your spouse if he or she loves you, something is wrong with your marriage. True or false? Reader's Digest says false. What is the most common problem that couples face today? Is it sex? Is it money? Or is it communication? The answer is C, communication. We struggle sharing our feelings in addition to the facts. Three, who breaks off love relationships more? Men or women? I got this one wrong. Women actually do it. And they do it twice as often as men. Four. In marriage, is it normal for one spouse to not be physically attracted to, another, to their other spouse for extended periods of time? Yes. Or no. The answer is yes. Five. Jealously. Jealousy is more likely to be a sign of love or of insecurity or of competitiveness. I got this one wrong too. Love is the answer. Six, who lives longer? A, married people or B, single people? I knew this one. It's married people. Seven, can a person be intimately in love with two people, or that is, with more than one person at the same time? A, yes, B, no. The answer is no. Eight, do people expect too much from their marriage? Yes or no? The answer is yes. Truth is, people expect way too much from their marriage and work far too little at it. Nine, who copes with loneliness best in the absence of love? Husbands or wives? Wives. And then the 10th one, commitment is absolutely essential to a good love relationship. True or false? And the answer is true. Robert Munger, in that little booklet, and there are more booklets available in the welcome area, After the worship service, in his little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, pictures Jesus coming and knocking on the door of our heart. He wants to come in, and once let in, he wants to go from room to room to room to check how we're doing in that particular room. So we have already talked about the study and the workroom and the nursery and the dining room, and this morning Christ is knocking on the door and wondering if he can come into the bedroom. He wants to talk with us about the most intimate of relationships, that is, how we treat people of the opposite sex, how we treat our dates and our fiancés and our spouses. A few years ago, hardly any of us had heard names like Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser. Al Franken, Matt Lauer, Robert Anderson, James Levine, Steve Wynn, John Conyers, Deshaun Watson. But they, along with numerous Roman Catholic priests and several high-profile Protestant pastors, are part of a long and sadly growing list of people who have been accused of sexual misconduct Some have been indicted. Some have been tried. Some are currently imprisoned because of their behavior. Our nation, maybe even our entire world, struggles with sexual intimacy. And now, according to Robert Munger, as Jesus continues his tour of our heart, going from room to room, and now steps into our bedroom, he says... Let me help you with those intimate relationships. If you fail, if you feel shame and guilt, please know that I still love you and will remain with you. But talk to me about it. Acknowledge your failures. Take immediate corrective steps so that you don't repeat them over and over. You see, I am interested in your intimate relationships because they tell me a lot about the state of your heart. Let me tell you what I have planned. So our text this morning is Hebrews 13. And from our text, there are three words that I'd like to focus on for a few minutes each. The text reads, marriage should be honored. That's the first word, by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. That's the second word. For God will judge. That will be our third word the adulterer, and all the sexually immoral. And then at the end, I'd like to add a fourth word, a very important word. So let's take the first one. The first word is honor. Honor is the initial and it is the primary focus of this text. Marriage should be honored by all. First, The word honor means, quote, to cherish, to esteem, to reverence, to value highly, end quote. Marriage is to be highly valued because it is a relationship that has been designed and established by God. Marriage was his idea. He wrote marriage into his creation plan from the very beginning. Now it is true that marriage has been distorted by our sin, (laughs) but marriage is still here and sin has not destroyed it paul inspired by the holy spirit uses marriage as we read earlier to symbolize god's relationship with his people paul says christ is the husband to us the church and we the church are his bride So getting marriage right is absolutely imperative because our understanding of marriage helps us understand our relationship with Jesus and his relationship with us as his church. Paul writes, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery because I am talking about Christ and the church A person shall leave his family relationships and be united to Christ, and the two shall become one. This is about Christ and his disciples. Since God designed marriage, he requires that we hold it in high honor and with great value. The second word, marriage, Second, the word marriage here in the Greek has several nuances. First, it is the reference to the marriage ceremony, that is, to the legal event where we bind one to another, a husband and a wife in marriage. But it also underscores that this legal binding, this marriage commitment to live together is lifelong for life. Even the Greeks, in their very promiscuous culture understood that marriage was the commitment between one man and one woman and until recently the word marriage has suggested a public and legal union of one man and one woman designed to last for a lifetime this is also how God and the scripture define marriage third is the words among all Refer here not only to all persons, but to all situations, all respects, all circumstances. That is, no one should at any time or under any circumstances dishonor the God idea or God designed for marriage. No one should promote ideas or activities that devalue or cheapen marriage. No one should participate in movements or behaviors that disregard God's intention for a healthy, intimate, lifelong, committed relationship. Now, this is not to say that everyone should get married. This is not to say that everyone needs to be married in order to be complete or satisfied or fulfilled or even within God's will. It does, however, mean that all of us, including those who are dating engaged, married, and even those who are not married must still honor, highly value what God has designed marriage to be. Now it is no secret that we live in a society that has real issues with what God has said about marriage in the Bible. But then, let's be honest, our society and our culture has issues with a lot of what God has to say. Some people suggest that we ought to reinterpret certain passages differently in order to correspond and change with our changing culture. Others simply disregard God's prescriptions and say they're antiquated, they're old fashioned, and they're no longer relevant. But scripture has been clear. God's design for marriage, his design is that it's lifelong. God's design for marriage is to provide a secure and lasting environment where spouses can work on their relationship, struggle together with the challenges, and learn to extend grace and faithfulness and forgiveness. Sadly, many marriages today are often viewed as a commodity to be traded or as an experiment simply to be tried rather than as a lasting commitment. People don't like commitment today. They don't want to step up and step in. Marriage is seen as dispensable short-term. Marriages today can be dissolved for almost any and every reason. And as a result, over 40% of the marriages in the United States end up in divorce. Second, God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for binding two lives and deepening love, Munger says, for its creative power to bring human life into being. Every passage in Scripture, every passage that's about marriage, either says or assumes that truth. Our world, however, is indifferent to the composition of a biblical marriage. Our world today permits, even encourages Not only marriage between a man and a woman, but between two women, two men, and in some places between one man and even multiple women. Third, our world places the emphasis on an individual, even in the context of marriage and on the individual's personal success. Today, the pressure is on for individuals to succeed at all costs, even at the cost of a marriage. Marriage. And the family. If one's marriage, if one's spouse appears to be interfering with one's success or satisfaction or happiness, all too often it's the marriage that has to go. People think intimacy, even sexual intimacy, is all about their own personal satisfaction and their own personal gratification. God intended in intimacy to be expressed within the context of a loving, self-sacrificing, lasting partnership that is deeper, broader, and focused on the other, not on self. And fourth, our worldviews marriage is a contract. A contract that says, if you do this, then I'll do that. And when I do this, I expect you to do that. And if one party values, or excuse me, violates that contract, then the marriage is done. The contract is broken. Scripture reminds us that God has designed marriage to be a covenant. Not a covenant merely between the husband and the wife, but a covenant between the couple and God himself. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, says the author of Ecclesiastes. So even in a covenant, if one party breaks their covenant commitment, the covenant still remains in effect. God longs to be the central part and focus of our marriage. So he can bless the husband and he can bless the wife and he can bless the marriage. Purity. The verse goes on. It says, and the marriage bed must be kept pure. Pure. The bedroom should not be spoiled, tainted, defiled, or cheapened. It should be worthy of Christ's presence, worthy of covenant keeping. I think it's important to understand that it is God that created sex. God, if you will, is pro sex. God said sex can be very, very good. Our God-given sexuality is an essential part of who we are, whether we're single or whether we're married, whether we're young or whether we're old, whether we're male or whether we're female. Our sexuality is designed to be a constant source of mystery and wonder and joy, to be explored and enjoyed throughout our life. But the best intimacy And therefore, the best sex, God says, is to be found in the context of a marriage, in a secure, lifelong, covenantal relationship. Because you see, intimacy requires a solemn promise, a deep commitment, and a gracious, selfless, and loving spirit. Physical intimacy is a gift of God that allows two souls and two bodies to unite as one. It is the ultimate form of human unity, whereas Munger writes, to truly become one in Christ. Being physically intimate with somebody outside of marriage means making promises one has no intention of keeping, engages the encounter as a temporary contract, scoffs at commitment, focuses on one's personal pleasure and gratification instead of on loving the other and pushes Christ right out of the relationship and room. Promiscuity damages one's soul. And that's why God says it's sin. This command further underscores God's intention and his design for marriage First, by implication, it speaks to premarital impurity. To play husband and wife when one is not husband and wife is not just a bad game. It dishonors marriage. It treats something that God has designed to be highly valued as something cheap and disposable. Whether you're young and you can't wait, or whether you're old and simply want to protect your financial assets, we may not pretend that the public covenant of marriage doesn't matter. God doesn't want any of us, his children, to settle for a cheap invitation like cohabitation, or an affair, or a one-night stand. Second, this text from Hebrews clearly states an invitation to fidelity and troth. The bedroom is reserved for a man and a woman who have become husband and wife. In marriage, as God designed it, a husband commits to and takes responsibility for loving his wife selflessly, sacrificially, and intimately. In a marriage, a wife commits to and is responsible for loving her husband selflessly, sacrificially, and intimately. They commit to this troth until death does them part. This focus on fidelity and troth also has implications for a wide variety of other things like telling crude jokes, pornography, inappropriate touching, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, rape, sex trafficking, fornication and adultery all of those things lack purity they all lack honor they all betray God's intention currently 81% of women will be sexually harassed or abused during their lifetime 81% even the look is covered everyone knows the look even if Some people still think it's innocent. For example, a couple is in a restaurant. A young woman is waiting on them. The husband finds her attractive and starts staring at her. He does this to feed his own personal desires. You can see it in his face. The Bible calls it lust. The woman serving knows it and feels awkward or embarrassed. The man's wife notices and feels crushed, rejected, and maybe even angry. If she mentions it, he will deny it, adding lying to his sin and further damage the marriage as well as his integrity. He thinks he hasn't violated the seventh or any other commandment because all he has done is just look. But scripture says even the look dishonors marriage and god god's word here in hebrews about marriage please understand as a command it's not merely a recommendation or some good advice it's god's will that the bedroom of our heart and home remain pure and undefiled it is god's will that we should refrain from sexual sin and treat all others as image bearers of god the image bearers that they are. It is God's will that we maintain purity of thought, purity of conduct, purity in our words, and purity of desire. God loves and longs to bless us. God's intention for marriage, those intentions are designed so that you and I can receive his optimal blessing Unfortunately, in our sinful world, our promises, our commitments, our best of intentions, and our best efforts often, always fall short. Truth is, there has never been a perfect marriage. And a thriving marriage is not only a gift, but it's a result of hard, consistent work. Jesus was questioned in that Matthew 19 passage we read about divorce. Why, if God wants marriage to be lifelong, did Moses allow men to divorce their wives? It's important, I think, we know Jesus' answer. He says, because your hearts were hard. People who are stubborn and uncompromising, people who constantly and consistently demand their own way, people who are unwilling to admit any personal weaknesses or failures and work on them, and people who constantly blame others for their misfortune are said to have a rock-hard heart. Jesus is saying God can't bless people with a rock-hard heart. Like our relationship with God, a marriage relationship can only flourish when the husband and the wife both have a soft heart. There's a difference, you see, between working with clay and working with stone. Working with Play-Doh and working with a rock. One can be molded and bent and shaped and the other one cannot. When both husband and wife have a pliable soft heart, God can step into that relationship and bend and shape and bless a marriage. When one or even both spouses have a hard heart, the marriage is going to be troubled. But the health or hurting of a particular marriage doesn't alter God's hope and intention and prescription for marriage. This third word is not a very popular word. It's the word judgment. Judgment but the word and the warning that goes with it goes something like this. If you ignore God's design, if you ignore his intention, if you ignore his command, if you defy his will, you will be judged. This applies to following his directions for marriage as well. God cannot bless an adulterous or sexually immoral relationship. The word immoral is sometimes, fairly often as a matter of fact, translated as fornicator. That is one who engages in sexual intimacy before marriage. An adulterer is someone who is married and engages in sexual intimacy with someone that they are not married to. So before and after the wedding, people who ignore God will be judged. God gives this warning repeatedly. He gives it throughout Scripture. Paul, for example, writes in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers will be able to inherit the kingdom of heaven unless they repent and unless they are forgiven. It is always wise to take God's warning of judgment seriously. In Jesus' day, there were rabbis who wanted to avoid God's judgment by not lusting. And so they would never literally look at any woman, literally. They figured, if I don't see one, then I can't lust after one. So when a woman would come into their line of sight, no matter what they were doing, they would simply close their eyes as she passed. I'm not making this up. They were known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis because they would walk into walls. They would trip over rocks. They wanted to avoid any opportunity to lust. They didn't want God's judgment. Now, I don't think God is inviting us to go to that extreme. But most of our world... Doesn't take God's instructions or his impending judgment seriously at all. Instead, most people seem to tuck the bedroom off to the side of their heart. They want God to stay out and away from it. Some are able to keep their immorality, that is, their lusting and their inappropriate sexual advances, even their adultery, secret, even from their spouse, sometimes for a while sometimes even for a long while. But God knows. God sees not only our dishonoring acts, he knows our lustful heart, our immoral curiosity, and our sinful desires. He knows. God gives us multiple warnings. He longs for us to repent, to confess, to seek his grace, to strive to live worthy of the blessings he longs for and wants to give us. He says, stop. Don't go there. Cut it out. Don't do that. Stay away. Otherwise, I'll have to judge you. His judgment is clear. It's significant. And it can even be eternal. God reminds us that there is no place for the defiant, for rock-hard heartedness, for disobedience, for immorality in his kingdom. And we should take those warnings seriously. This morning, I'm thankful there is a fourth word. It's not found in this text, but it's found throughout scripture. And you know the word, the word is grace. You may, in theory, agree with everything that we have been talking about this morning, but you still think, Doug, you don't know my marriage. It's a mess. It's too far gone to to fix. There is no hope. I don't even think my spouse loves me. I have tried everything. When a marriage struggles... It's painful for everyone. It's painful for the husband. It's painful for the wife. It's painful for the children. It's painful for the extended family, for friends. It's painful for the whole body of Christ. But God, who created marriage, says, I long for marriage to be honored by all, even when the marriage is troubled. And hurting. How do we handle that? How do we handle that day in and day out? Where do we find the strength to endure even one more day of petty bickering? How do we handle the incessant complaining, belittling, and rejection? How do we survive in a marriage without any affection? How can we forgive our spouse's continual infidelity over and over? How can we muster any hope that it might be different? God says, my grace is sufficient. So what does that mean? God never says, stay faithful, stick with it without also reminding us that he will be there with us and give us what we need. Even if that's just the courage to face the rest of the day and tomorrow. Perhaps that's forgiveness for a boatload of shame and guilt. Forgiveness for all the regrets and failures. Or forgiveness for not being able to be forgiving. God's grace is sufficient. Perhaps that's the strength to resist temptation, the strength to respond to yelling with a soft word, the strength to walk an extra mile. If that's the case, he says his strength is sufficient. If that's healing from abuse and betrayal and brokenness and bitterness and anger, perhaps it's the courage to have to go it alone after a spouse has left. He can help. It's true, sadly, that there are some times when leaving is the only way to honor a marriage, when leaving is the only way to keep the marriage bed pure. As I look at those four words this morning, honor and purity and judgment and grace, I lean most heavily on the last one. On grace. Not only is God's grace sufficient and abundant and available free, but we all need it. We all depend on it. It's only by God's grace that marriage can be honored, that purity can be maintained, and that God's judgment can be avoided. It's only by God's grace and forgiveness by both husband and wife reflecting God's grace and forgiveness and faithfulness to one another. That is, having a soft heart that a marriage, any marriage can survive or grow or reflect God's relationship with us, his people. God reminds us over and over that his grace is sufficient. His forgiveness always follows genuine repentance and healing and blessing come when we seek it and follow his will. And acknowledging his grace and the need for it in our life allows us to be gracious toward others who are struggling and going through difficult times and need the grace that we have to offer in Jesus. And God reminds us that his grace is most clearly seen in Jesus. The most important person in our marriage, in any marriage, must be the most important person in our life, in every room of our heart. And the most important person in our life must be the most important person in our marriage. And that person must be Jesus. When marriage is honored, Jesus is honored. When Jesus is honored, then and only then can we honor marriage. If your marriage, you might say, is in trouble, or if your life is in trouble, there is no simple formula that will make it suddenly go away. All the issues disappear, suddenly make it wonderful. Wonderful. The truth is, help is available. Your faith family is here to support and encourage you, to walk alongside of you, to express love and grace to you. And Jesus will provide the healing and the forgiveness. So there's Jesus. And he's standing at our door and he's knocking He longs to come into our life, to come into our heart, to come into our study, to come into our nursery, into our family relationships, into our workroom, our life's mission, into our dining room, our deepest desires, and into our bedroom, into our most intimate relationships. He longs to take up residence. He longs to keep our hearts soft so he can bless us and bless us. And bless us. He is knocking. Will you open your door? Will you invite him in?